0: is a little bit different so I'm just here to provide some context. A couple weeks ago I talked about how I got the opportunity to host uh, some Symphonies for Schools concerts um, at the LA Phil um, and I interviewed Chris Bowers who is a film composer who most recently did the music for Chevalier um, as well as uh, Bridgerton, the Queen Charlotte spinoff, Space Jam, and um, uh, King Richard, a lot of stuff I'll talk about, um, some of his collaborations in the audio. But due to a lot of different factors, we cannot play uh, the music that was interspersed throughout this interview. So I'm just adding that context so you're not confused if we jump around a little bit. Um, but it's a really cool interview. He's going to, you know, play some examples and stuff. So there is a bit of music in here. Um, And yeah, it was also recorded in the hall, so there's a little bit of background noise, but it's a great interview, and I hope y'all enjoy it. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our Patreon. We just launched that, so the link is in the description if you would like to do that. Thanks, y'all. Okay, so first off, I'd like to introduce uh, some highlights of your work to our audience. So Chris Bowers is a film composer known for his genre-defying compositions that pay homage to his classical and jazz roots. He has collaborated with musicians and artists across genres, including some you might have heard of, Jay-Z, Kobe Bryant, Mahershala Ali, and Ava DuVernay. His works include Dear White People, Green Book,
1: When They See Us, Bridgerton,
0: Space Jam A New Legacy, Respect, and King Richard. We're so excited that you're here today and to get to hear about your creative voice and your hero's journey.
1: Thank you, thanks for having me.
0: So you were born and raised right here in Los Angeles. Can you tell us what was central about growing up in Los Angeles, like places or people that helped shape your identity as an artist and what drew you to start composing for film?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Mid-City, LA and um, I went to uh, Colburn across the street time I was like 9 until the end of high school. I went to Loxa for high school um, and uh, you know at each of those places I had a lot of incredible mentors, you know, incredible teachers and um, my parents actually really worked hard to find those places like you know there weren't that many music schools where I, where I was growing up, and they really scoured the city to find the best institutions and the best teachers for me, the best mentors for me. And so I really appreciate them for that and and my whole family. My uh, grandfather moved out here uh, when he was younger, and most of his siblings came out here. So I have like 50 family members out here, and all of them are very instrumental in my upbringing. Um, But as far as getting into film scoring, my parents uh, uh, really were a bit hard on me with coming up with like a plan for myself pretty early on and they asked me like when I was 12, like what do you wanna do with your life essentially? And um, I had at that point already told them, you know, I want to uh, do jazz piano and then transition to film scoring. And for me, it's mainly because the piano at that time was such a vehicle for my emotional outlet. And um, uh, when I realized that that was a job film scoring that your job was to translate these emotions that you're seeing in the story on film into music that just made perfect sense to me. So uh you know, I just kinda of told anybody that would listen that I want to be a film composer and some of my early projects came from some people that, you know, remembered like, oh remember when you were in high school and you used to talk about being a film composer and they happened to be a producer on a on a documentary and that's kinda of how it started.
0: So we're honored that we get to hear about your original compositions today, but we also get to hear you play some of them. Uh, so the first is going to be Venus versus Vicario from King Richard, which is a story about how tennis superstars Venus and Serena Williams became who they are with the support of their father. So you created today's musical selections as both compositions that have helped inspire your works, but also as a soundscape to your hero's journey. What about Different Trains did you use as an inspiration when you were writing Venus
1: versus Vicari? Yeah, so Different Trains, the piece you just heard. I remember the first time I heard it, a friend of mine showed it to me. Um, I was already like, out of college, I was a little bit older, and I, I hadn't heard the piece before. And I uh, hadn't really heard very much of Steve Rock's music, and I immediately was emotionally moved, so much so that I kind of thought to myself, like, I'm not going to tell anybody about this piece, and if you don't already know about it, then that's, you know, your fault, essentially. <laughs> this would be, like, my little secret. And one day, I just couldn't help but tell somebody. I was like, man, you know this piece different trains? Um, another, like, jazz musician friend of mine, they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just mind blown that they weren't immediately launched into how emotional they were when they first heard it. and I think that for me was an aha moment of like, oh, like this uniquely spoke to me and there's something about this music that even though I haven't heard it, speaks to like the way that I hear music. And so from that point on, I've always been curious of how to like use some of those aspects of that piece and other pieces like it into some of my writing. So for this piece, Venus and Picario, there's uh, this pattern that you hear in different trains in a lot of Steve Reich's music where you yeah, have this like um, that pattern there, but the thing I find about interesting about his music is that there are oftentimes these other interlocking patterns that keep it kind of uh, interesting. It's like mirror shaped, so you'll have like so. For and Vicario, you hear these string patterns that are playing uh, for the most part this main theme. But then there's this other, there are other interlocking patterns throughout the whole thing. So like things like uh... so that's pretty much how this piece uh, was inspired by different trains.
0: Next, we're going to experience Elgar's Enigma Variations, followed by a Love Theme from Chevalier, uh, composed by you, Chris. Can you talk about some sacrifices that you've had to make while achieving your dreams, and how those two pieces reflect that?
1: Yeah, so I think um, you know, the biggest sacrifice uh, is really time, as I'm sure a lot of you guys know, being musicians. I think that uh, when I was younger, I didn't really uh, mind that, uh, and for me, like, pretty early on, I started to adopt the mentality that like, I would much rather spend time uh, getting better at this craft, and, and also, again, like I felt this emotional safety with a piano, so I felt like I'd rather spend time there than in some situation where I'll probably feel a little awkward or <laughs> anything like that. And um, uh, I didn't really think about the need to like, spend time hanging out with friends, or, like any of that kind of stuff, like my best friends uh, were similar. So we all kind of felt like, yeah, like we'll hang out when we hang out, but otherwise like we all wanna get better at, at our craft. So I really was thankful to have that, that village around me. And it wasn't until I was older that I was like, oh yeah, I guess I didn't really, you know, have a normal childhood, but at that point I was kind of happy with the idea of not really being normal. Um, and then as I get older, you know, that sacrifice looks a little different, you know, and I'm really glad that I had that time when I was your guys' age and through college to be able to not feel uh, any sort of, or that much weight from those sacrifices, but now those sacrifices are more like, you know, time with my wife, and time with my daughter we just had, and so that feels a little bit different, and a little bit more difficult. So as far as like how these pieces represent those things, I think that for me, those emotions that I might feel uh, are not really something that I uh, show very much. And again, the piano was always a place for me to like, and music was always a place for me to express those emotions or feel those emotions when I hear something. So this Enigma Variations, you know, piece was written for different, dedicated to different people in Elgar's life. And I feel like you can really feel this, this emotional weight and longing. And, and uh, uh, depth to the way that the piece feels because of that. So it's a piece I often go to whenever I'm thinking about that type of feeling and either wanting to just feel that or wanting to study that, to try to express that in something I'm working on. And then in, in the Chevalier piece, uh, you'll hear these different variations on a love theme, but the love theme is, their, their love story is a bit uh, troubled. And I won't like, talk too much about it because the movie comes out later and I don't want to ruin it, But their love, their love is, a, is really troubled, so therefore their theme kind of has that kind of bittersweet, sad, dangerous, dangerous quality to it. Um, and at the beginning of that section, I'll do a bit of improvisation, just kind of show my process. Usually whenever I'm thinking about an emotion I'm trying to represent in a film, I'll like meditate on that emotion and think about that feeling, and then start to just kind of improvise until I find something that feels like it feels the way that the story feels, and these character feels, and that theme feels, and then um, uh, I kind of find something that feels like it's right for the picture. So uh, it'll be a bit of improv into the themes from uh, Chevalier.
0: In typical hero's journey form, after our hero really feels that call to action, there's always something that gets in the way whether that be internal, like overcoming self-doubt, or external, like feeling pressure from the industry when composing for these huge blockbuster projects that have historically been dominated by people who don't look like us. What are some of the moments that you've had to overcome challenges, whether that be personal or artistically, and how did you persevere through them?
1: Uh, Yeah. definitely every single day. <laughs> um, and uh, I feel like I talk to a lot of other like, composer friends about how with every project or every piece of music there's always this like valley of despair essentially where like you start off feeling really optimistic and then you start the process and then all of a sudden you feel like, you know, ah oh, I suck and like this is not going well and like, I can't do anything right and all these other feelings. <laughs> and I feel like um, you know, when I was younger, getting through that was usually motivated by fear. A lot of it was like, oh, but if like, I like don't, what's going to happen? Like the fear of, of failure was so present and strong when I was younger. And the older I got, the more that that just was like messing with me, even just like uh, health-wise. And so, you know, lately I've just been trying to figure out how to uh, really take a second to have an internal dialogue And figure out what's going on in those moments you know there are times where like i'll stop and you know i'll have that voice that's like nagging at me about how bad something i'm doing is essentially and i'll stop and uh just kind of ask that voice like what like what's what's the point of what you're saying right now like why are you being this way essentially and the more i kind of have that internal dialogue the more i'll realize that it's like oh i just really care a lot about this this is really important to me so that's why this voice is so like uh Aggressive and anxious, but really like just recognizing that yeah, it's important, but you know take it one step at a time I think that's been really helpful in those moments just really getting underneath why it is that my brand is like Working the way that it is um, And then the other part of it is just trusting the process and taking it like moment by moment brick by brick You know, I think every single thing that I'm doing. I try to take it down I get the smallest bite um, and um, uh, You know I think that really helps me get through anything,
0: for sure. And sometimes the path is a tool that helps us in the creative process, like, for instance, the space that you create around yourself when you compose. So we've brought in some elements of your creative space. Can you talk us through how these things help you um, in your creative process? Yeah.
1: Uh, So the candles are because of uh, uh, how dark my space is. I usually, like I have, uh, blackout shades and black walls in my studio, and I, I never know what time of day it is, and I prefer it like that. I usually uh, work best kind of in the middle of the night because you know I can kind of ignore the world in a lot of ways, and I feel like uh, the dark space kind of helps me feel like it's the middle of the night all the time, which is helpful. Um, so the candles are nice in terms of uh, not having some bright light on and just having some sort of like mood lighting, if you will. And then um, the books are, are symbolic of how much I'm studying through the process. Like every piece of music I'm writing, I'm always looking at like, okay, well, what can I look at to, um, to learn from to make this piece that I'm working on better, whether it's like finding something orchestrationally or, um, or looking at how somebody handles something uh, emotionally. And I feel like that's what's helped me become a better composer over time is just like, I, constantly studying. And I think the people that I looked up to and, and had as mentors, the thing that I found consistently among all of them is that, you know, there's this uh, notion that people are just naturally great and the people that are the greatest actually just worked so much harder and studied so much deeper and were so much more obsessed than everybody else. And so I feel like that obsession with study and, and curiosity and progress is definitely a big thing for me. So I'm always studying. and um, the, the metronome, I think, is just one, just how much I'm hearing, I'm of I'm recording and, and uh, I'm practicing and all of that, but um, I also feel like it's very symbolic of my dad because my dad, uh, in a lot of ways, is, you know, by, my aggressive voice in my head, it's kind of a manifestation of him, to be honest, which if he was here, you he would kind of think that was great. <laughs> I mean, if he was hearing this word, he's still he's still with us, but, um, you know, I think that, like, he was really such a disciplinarian when it came to, like, uh, every aspect of my life And I feel like it was something that he and I had to work through in our, in our actual relationship, but it's something that I really appreciate now uh, as I get older, just having something that's constantly trying to, um, uh, you know, uh, something I'm trying to constantly hold myself to, you know, and I think that that
0: metronome is kind of a a symbolic representation of that. So... French composer Maurice Ravel has been a role model for you as a composer. Can you talk about how the next piece that we're going to hear by him has been inspiring to you in your work?
1: Yeah, so this next piece, uh, I've, I have always loved the piece, but it really came up for me again when I was working on the show Bridgerton. And uh, Chris Van Dusen, the show's creator, he uh, brought the piano version of this piece to me as a reference for the love theme for Simon and Daphne. and. When he first brought that to me, it kind of opened up this whole world of music for the show for me as a reference because um, the show takes place in the 1700s, the early 1700s, and like, you know, Ravel is way after that. And so I never thought that I could use him as a, as a reference point uh, compositionally or orchestrationally. And so once he introduced that, I was like, oh, it's a no brainer. It's so romantic. It feels like obviously fresh for the time period and, and all of that. Um, and so this piece not only was really influential for their love theme and this idea of like mystery and and, uh, romance and and all that, but it's something that I also always go to whenever I'm trying to represent those types of feelings. Like it feels like water and it has this kind of like floaty, dreamy quality to it. And so I feel like that has been uh, super inspirational to me throughout, but definitely for uh, Bridgeton. One of the last steps
0: Information and their return. So, as you found your creative voice over the years, what has been one of the greatest lessons you've learned about yourself, and how do you continue to evolve? Yeah, I think
1: really the biggest lesson has just been um, learning that I again love curiosity, love learning, and just kind of focusing on my why. You know, anytime I have felt lost or rudderless or couldn't find a direction. I always try to remind myself why it is that I'm doing what I'm doing, and I feel like so much of that for me, you know, comes down to things like uh, just wanting to learn and continue to get better and grow, Uh, at this point, even now being a father, like my why a lot of times is, you know, what my daughter will think of me as she grows up, you know, so I feel like uh, thinking about my why and all the things that have kind of come up when I think about that is definitely a big thing that I um, have learned about myself.
0: So thinking full circle, just like a hero's journey, we're gonna look back to the beginning of the concert when the orchestra played the anonymous lover by Joseph Bologna. Can you talk about how that opening piece and how uh, Joseph Bologna as a composer has inspired you?
1: Yeah, so I'm um, sad to say that Joseph Bologna is someone who I didn't really know until fairly recently. Uh, he's an incredible black composer uh, who lived in France and um, uh, you know was definitely regarded during his time as one of the greatest composers uh, in his time, also one of the greatest violinists of his time, and shortly after Napoleon came into power, Napoleon destroyed most of his music. And so I feel like between that and the fact that, you know, the little bit of music that remains, I feel like people refer to him as the Black Mozart, which is uh, really a disservice to him because he's older than Mozart. There's also, you know. Studying that's been done that says that there's possibility that Mozart was inspired by him, you know. And so I think that for me it felt so uh, amazing and also heartbreaking at the same time when I first found out about his music because there's just this wealth of excellence when you look at what he was able to create and accomplish, uh, especially at that time. And um, you know I'm really thankful to have him and and uh, his work as inspiration. But I definitely feel like I'm curious what I would have thought of. Uh, terms of being a black composer or even thinking about my relationship with like the classical space uh, when i was a kid if i knew that he existed when i was younger so i definitely feel like um, uh, he's such an incredibly important figure for sure
0: and do you have any advice for our young people in the audience today who are on their own journeys of finding their voice and looking for mentorship yeah i would definitely say with
1: mentorship you know uh, when we're younger it's definitely somewhat easy to um, uh, Look at the mentorship that's directly around you in school or in your families and as we get older You know, it's important to remember that that process never stops, you know, I think about uh, My time with someone like Kobe Bryant and I feel like he used to cold-call people all the time and it was like so amazing to me. Like, he called John Williams like once a month to talk about John Williams' process as a composer and how that might inspire him as an athlete and later as a filmmaker. Um, he, he called Oprah and uh, Beyonce, like all these different people that he just wanted to ask questions. And I think spending time with him, I realized that uh, it's how important it is that if ever I had some sort of dream or idea or thing that I want to accomplish that I didn't know how to do that I could just pick up the phone and try to call somebody and of course you know some people didn't respond because people are busy and all that but I think you'll be surprised to find how many people are um, open and willing to give uh, advice and to help out so I definitely think uh, just seeking mentorship uh, throughout the rest of our lives is incredibly important. I think the second thing I'd say as far as advice is, you know, this hero's journey in a lot of ways is about meeting our dark side, meeting our shadow self, right? Like, the the protagonist and antagonists are really like two two sides of, of our psyche in a lot of ways, and if it's important to recognize that, you know, if there's any aspect of your personality that you feel like doesn't exist, there's probably an aspect of that that's in this shadow self, whether it's like, you know, you don't think yourself as an angry person, you probably have some anger like deep, deep down inside. And so it's so important to like, essentially make friends with that shadow self and find healthy and, and acceptable places to express that, whether it's music or art or sports, you know, I think sports is such a clear place where people can like be really aggressive or express these other, these aspects of their personality. So, you know, definitely finding ways and spaces to, really figure out what that shadow self is for you and how you can learn how to embrace it and make friends with
0: it. So now let's take a look at some performance footage of little Chris.
1: My uh, grandfather told me recently, I did a, a short documentary with him where I interviewed him and I did this film because I was writing a violin concerto that was actually premiered here with the AYS and I, um, I was feeling a lot of doubt when I was doing it and my grandfather is a black man from the south uh, in Panhandle, Florida that at 17 he hitchhiked here by himself, no destination to buy and then, like A few years later, he owned a building and a business and started a family and then like, you know, uh, kind of built a lot of foundation for our family. So my mind, I was like, I'll sit with him because obviously, being a black man that wasn't even high school educated, that a few years later had a business and a family, he must have had moments of self-doubt and imposter syndrome. And I would ask him these questions and I kept trying to find different ways to ask him uh, a question to get him to say, yeah, I doubted myself at some point he kind of got frustrated with me he was like why would i ever doubt myself He was like everybody else is doubting me especially like when he was coming up like in the jim crow south it's like everyone else is doubting me like why would i do that in my own mind and i think that's something that really stuck with me uh in that like it never really dawned on me that you know you have these thoughts and these feelings that come up that we think we have control of but we don't so much of it is like autopilot and these internal things that are happening And so, remembering that I have control over it uh, and that it doesn't make sense to have any sort of like self-doubt kind of uh, self-created in my own mind is something that I still try to keep uh, front and center in my mind based on my conversation with him. So, I definitely would tell that younger self to um, uh, not doubt yourself for sure.
0: That is a word. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, so as we approach uh, the full circle ending of your hero's journey, which, in truth, is always a new beginning, what does the next piece, uh, Dmitri Shostakovich's Tenth Symphony, mean to you?
1: So I think uh, for me, again, a lot of my own shadow self has been like, you know, emotion. I think that, like, especially as a young black man, I wasn't really able to express like deep sadness or, uh, you know, like romantic love or anger in a lot of ways. You know, I think those things were kind of like uh, frowned down upon in different areas of my life. And so, uh, again, music was such a safe space for me to be able to express those things. And as I got older, I started to realize that I can like interact with these parts of myself that feel these things. And so I think that this Shostakovich piece is is a piece that I often go to when I want to uh, have, in the feeling of rage or anger. Uh, whenever I'm writing a piece for a villain, I often go to this piece to look at, like, how does this express this feeling of anger and rage? Uh, and as we you know, end thinking about this hero's journey and this idea of, like, embracing this shadow self and all that and finding ways to use that shadow self to express yourself in art, I feel like this piece is a perfect way to, um, to end that idea. So.
0: So this brings us to the end of our conversation. We would like to thank each and every one of you in the audience for being here with us today and to remind you that you too are the hero of your own hero's journey.